the streets are extended gutters and the gutters are full of blood and when the drains finally scab over all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up about their waists and all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us! And I look down and whisper, No. That's not very nice, is it? You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. And I'm Christian. Hi. This week we read a classic of graphic literature, Watchmen, by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Watchmen is maybe the most revered and most influential graphic novel of all times. And for the medium of comics, its influence and its status it is hard to overestimate. The graphic novel takes place in a world that is much like ours in the 1980s. However, it is an alternate timeline, one in which superheroes are not just part of the pop culture world, but a reality. So in the 1940s and 50s, people started dressing up and started to fight crime. And the influence their actions had on this world and on the history of this world were immense, mainly because one of them, Dr. Manhattan, is actually a superhuman being who can do basically anything. He's the closest thing to a walking god on Earth. And he is used by the Americans as a weapon in the Cold War. The changes are obvious. America relies not only on nuclear weapons, but on a blue superhero. Richard Nixon has been president for over 12 years now in this world. And many technical developments are also quite different from the 1980s as we know it. The plot starts when one retired superhero called the Comedian, who used to work for the US government, is brutally killed in his apartment. And another vigilante called Rorschach starts to investigate the crime and slowly uncovers what he thinks to be a conspiracy against vigilantes, trying to kill them one after the other. However, the conspiracy he uncovers is much more far-reaching. Basically, one of the superheroes called Ozymandias fakes an alien invasion that kills millions of people on the streets of New York but he doesn't do it because he's evil. He tries to stop the Cold War, uniting the superpowers against this perceived alien threat. So the book ends in a very ambiguous, bittersweet finale that leaves many questions open and up to the reader. Watchmen was published in 1850... <laughs> <laughs> in 1858... And it was really crazy, and nobody got it. And then it was republished 100 years later, and everyone said, Oh, that's what that is about. Watchmen was first published in 1986 to 1987 in 12 installments that were then all collected into one graphic novel, which is the way that most people read it today. So the graphic novel has 12 chapters that initially were individual issues. It immediately was recognized as a great innovation in comics, something that had not been there before, and its reputation has grown ever since. So the first question we ask, or I may ask you, Jonas, is it 
okay of us to discuss Watchmen in this podcast? Do you think that Watchmen is actually literature? Yes. And if you don't think so, fuck off. That is a very concise answer. So we can go on. <laughs> But that's all there is to say to People argue that this is not proper literature because it has pictures in it. And that is either really petty or really snobbish. It tells a story. It is printed. It is meant to be read. And therefore it is a special kind of literature, surely. But it is definitely literature. And it also has the depth of a more traditional grasp of literature, a kind of poetic self-reflexivity of language, or in this case at least, pictures. Because Watchmen is an incredibly complex piece of work. It has an incredible amount of allusions to comics history, to actual history, to other works. It is structured in an incredibly intricate way with lots of visual and textual hints and symbols that reoccur over and over again and basically open up a kind of map of translinear connections between panels, pages and chapters. So it is a really dense work to get into. It's also very interesting for us here at the podcast because so far we have done three episodes on things we had read before that we knew really well. We've done one episode on a book that neither one of us had read before. And this is the first time that our levels of knowledge are very different. Because I had read only one graphic novel before this. And I didn't particularly like it. And I think it's fair to say you do know quite a bit about comics because you wrote your PhD on graphic literature. Yes, I read quite a few graphic novels and I think I read... Watchmen at least seven or eight times, partly for pleasure, partly for work. What was very interesting for me as a relative newcomer to this genre of graphic novel was that I found it very hard to concentrate on the pictures. I read the speech bubbles and the captions, and then I had to remind myself, oh, also look at the pictures, especially because in Watchmen that really pays off. There is so much intricate detail in it. For example, at one point fairly early on, there's a newspaper that has the headline, Vietnam becomes 51st state. So you realize, oh, apparently something has gone differently in the Vietnam War than we know it, probably to do with the presence of these superheroes. Even for me, rereading it so many times, there's always something new to discover. Another detail, another symbolic connection that I hadn't picked up on before. Rereading is probably really key for Watchmen. But sometimes I do the same for almost all comic I read. Because, yes, it's a specific kind of reading. One that has to take into account both the words and the pictures. And I think that with Watchmen in particular, Moore and Gibbons use the medium to express exactly that, that this story can only be told in the form of a comic. So Jonas, for you as a newcomer to not only graphic novels, but also superhero comics, was it hard to get into what Watchmen was about? The plot, but also the kind of intertextual allusions? Not really, partly because I had read a lot about Watchmen before, but also because... Nowadays, superheroes are so prevalent in our culture. The biggest blockbuster movies are superhero movies. So I know about superheroes and superhero mythology just because of their cultural prevalence, especially in movies. 
But the fact that the images are so important for the story is one of my problems with Watchmen because I don't really like the style. The style is very realistic and at times quite ugly. This is set in a very gritty alternate reality. It's New York, it's dirty, there's blood, there's gristle. All of the men have stubbly beards at times, except for Ozymandias, who always looks stunning. And that is drawn in very intricate detail. And at times that sort of put me off a little. And even though I don't know a lot about uh, comics, my girlfriend does, and she said this to her looks a bit like an old-fashioned style, which is obvious because this book is 30 years old, so of course the style is going to be a bit dated by now. Even at the time, I think you had artists like Bill Sinkiewicz, who did much more dynamic and much more expressionist art for comics than Gibbons does for Watchmen. And I think I agree in the beginning when I read it for the first time, I was also put off by the kind of ugly style at times, or sometimes even old-fashioned style. But I think it also serves a purpose. Much of the story is about history, about the past, past things that are still important nowadays. So there's a first generation of superheroes whose actions influence the present and the second generation of superheroes. And so these flashbacks to the 40s and 50s, there the style actually fits because it is such an old-fashioned style. And it shows that, for superheroes at least, not much seems to have changed. Not in this world, but also not in our world. At least in the 1980s, many of the superheroes' adventures still had the same formula as the early adventures of Superman, Batman, and so on. And Moore wanted to change that. He wanted to show that in the 1980s, in the logic of the accelerating Cold War, this old-fashioned, ordered picture of the world and good and evil simply didn't fit anymore. So there's a distinct contrast between the images, which are old-fashioned and ordered and detailed, and the story, which is very much about chaos and about the limits of trying to find order in such a world. One character where I always felt that the art style became a bit more ordered and a bit more clean and structured is Night Owl. And he was really appealing to me Partly, maybe it's like Walter Shandy last episode. Uh, he's an elderly intellectual kind of guy, so I can identify with him maybe. <laughs> but also, I really liked the way that his chapters were drawn. For example, at the end of chapter one, there's the scene where Rorschach comes to meet Night Owl and tells him that the comedian has been murdered. And Rorschach is drawn in this very ugly way and he sort of pulls up his mask to eat something and you see his stubble and it's very disgusting. And Night Owl is a lot more reserved. And then the last panel of the chapter is Night Owl sitting next to his old costume that hangs in his closet unused. And it's beautiful and somehow tragic and touching as well. And then chapter 7 is all about Night Owl and how he gets back into the costume and becomes this superhero persona again. And that whole chapter I found very appealingly drawn. But then again, you probably shouldn't identify with Night Owl too much either. He's definitely the most identifiable of these superhero characters, simply because he seems to be the most normal one. All the other ones, they are, in the best case, mad. In the worst case, totally insane. Rorschach is a socio and a psychopath. The comedian is a 
nihilistic asshole. Ozymandias, who seems to be the most controlled and most most successful of the superheroes, turns out to be the evil supervillain of the piece, basically. And Dr. Manhattan, he isn't human anymore. He, because of his super-powered status, has distanced himself from humanity to an enormous degree. So Night Owl seems to be the most human and the most normal of these characters. But at the same time, him becoming that superhero again, for more it's probably not something to be welcomed because that means he's back in costume. He becomes someone else. And he has his own fuck-ups. He is basically only able to have sex when he's in costume. And that is something not only deeply psychosexual, but also tells you that dressing up as a superhero for him is fulfilling his fantasy, his power fantasy. So maybe Night Owl is simply the biggest hypocrite of them all because he tries to deny this appeal of the dark, of the hidden, this sexual power fantasy that all of these heroes seem to deal with to a certain degree. It's very interesting how the whole comic basically says, yeah, in order to dress up in a costume and go out and fight crime, something has to be wrong with you. You're either mad or you have some issues or it's a sex thing, maybe. And that reminded me, there are people who do that these days in the US. They dress up in costume and go out there and fight crime. Uh, For example, in Seattle, there's one called Phoenix Jones who walks around with pepper spray and a nightstick and a grappling hook. He actually has a grappling hook, but he says it's really impractical because you can get up onto a building, but then you're at the top of the building. And what are you going to do? Well, you'll sort of need to take the staircase in your spandex outfit, and that's really awkward. (laughs) You never see that in the comics. I think in Watchmen, you might see something like that. I mean, you see Rorschach's disgusting eating habits and uh, the slight belly of night owl and things like that so watchmen is all about the more realistic portrayal of superheroes what they would actually look like in our world and it's not a very pretty picture as i said you would have to be mad to actually become a superhero and the consequences their actions would have would not be nice ones they these aren't just vigilante fighters against injustice they would necessarily have a political dimension. And this is something that plays a big role, that these superheroes are intrinsically linked to the Cold War. Dr. Manhattan, most obviously. But the comedian, for example, works as a kind of state, government, assassin, and his political views are dubious, to say the least. He's a fascist. He's basically a fascist. And so we see that in a realistic portrayal of such a world superheroes would have immense consequences and again Moore is not a fan of superheroes i want to talk about dr manhattan a bit more he is the only real supernatural aspect of watchmen all the others are just really buff guys and girls who spend a lot of time in the gym and then get into their tight costumes and fight crime dr manhattan actually becomes a supernatural being due to an accident in a nuclear research lab. Classic. And he then becomes this blue, huge man who can basically do anything. He controls molecules with his mind. And he really becomes unhuman. And that is very 
interestingly done. For example, at the beginning he wears clothes, but over time he loses more and more of his humanity and therefore he also starts not wearing a suit anymore, but just trousers and just wearing a thong. And then eventually he's just naked and he doesn't care anymore. And that also has the effect that he doesn't really care about humans anymore. So even though the US relies on him as the cornerstone of their defense in the Cold War, he doesn't want to do that anymore because they are just like ants to him. He doesn't care about them. No, he just wants to do his own thing. And he goes to Mars and basically leaves everything behind. That is an interesting aspect and one that I think partly is really well done by Moran Gibbons. Dr. Manhattan not only has a distance view on humanity and its worth, so to say, but also has a strange view on time. At one point, he says that basically for him, there is no past, present and future. He can see everything at the same time. And that is really interesting, not only because it's an interesting view, but also because that is something you can actually show in comics, where you have the whole page in front of you as the reader. And you can just turn back see what panel comes before the present one, what panel comes next. So in a sense, you are a bit like Dr. Manhattan in your meta position. But at the same time, I find Dr. Manhattan's portrayal a bit problematic because while they're really interesting aspects and really interesting ones to consider for superheroes, it's not consistent enough. You mentioned that he becomes less and less human, so to say, and loses his clothing. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that he gives up his human form. He still walks around as a quite clearly man because we see his blue penis all over. And apparently it also doesn't keep him from having sex with 16-year-old girls because even if you're a superhuman being, that still has its appeal, apparently. So, yeah, I find his portrayal really interesting formally as well as narratively but in the end it maybe doesn't go far enough. I disagree with that because at the time when he starts his relationship with the second Silk Spectre, this 16-year-old girl. He hasn't been Dr. Manhattan for that long. So there, enough of his humanity is still left that he's still interested in sex, but he's not interested in sex with his girlfriend, who is older anymore. So instead, he's interested in the maybe more interesting prospect of a younger woman. But then over time, he grows disinterested with her as well, and he only has sex with her for her sake, but then... At the end, even that doesn't interest him anymore. And she begins a relationship with Night Owl, and he is not very bothered by it. So what you are seeing as a weakness is actually just the development of his character. He's still bothered enough to throw a hissy fit and go on Mars, because basically he is kind of pissed off by humanity. And he even says to her, when they're on Mars together, that her love was the only connection he still had to humanity. And that is, for a superhuman being really petty. You're saying that the love to another person is a really petty thing. For a godlike blue creature who considers the rest of humanity ants, yeah, might be. Yeah, but 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 that's just the last thing to vanish. That's the last vestige of his humanity. So uh, he loses it eventually. So Yeah, he, he throws a hissy fit and goes to Mars. But by the end, he leaves her behind. And he says, well, yeah, she's with Night Owl now, I guess. Whatever, I'll go off and create new life somewhere else, which is more interesting for me. Still in the guise of a blue human. There might be an interesting development there. 
I still think that it's sometimes not consistent enough. But on the other it's, hand... It, it, you know, it's not the same at the ending as it is in the middle of the book, but that's development. That's not inconsistency. Thanks for explaining that to me. Yeah, apparently you don't get it. <laughs> I mean, there is sometimes development which is more consistent. Again, with the character of Rorschach, which I find really fascinating, especially because he seems to be misinterpreted by so many readers of the graphic novel. Yes, Everybody adores Rorschach because he's visually very striking and he is this anti-guy. Uh, the quote we read out at the beginning, of course, is very, oh my God, everything is so horrible. But he's just a fucking idiot. He has this very appealing, super nihilistic worldview, which he explains in lots of detail and which seems to appeal to other characters in the world as well. But at the same time, Moore makes it quite clear that this is just one lesson and the wrong lesson to draw from the experiences with this dark world. Rorschach is never supposed to be anything else but a psychopath. And he is still the closest to being a heroic hero if you consider standing by your principles to be heroic. And that, again, says a lot about how Moore sees superheroes but it also says a lot about his audience. When they see Rorschach as someone to be emulated, that sends a shiver down my spine because Rorschach is the worst kind of superhero there is. But towards the end, you also get the impression that Moore sort of fell for him himself. Rorschach is the only one of the heroes who stands up to Ozymandias, who says, no, I will not go along with your plan, even though it ends the Cold War, it is deceitful and it is wrong and I'm going to tell the world about it. And then Dr. Manhattan kills him. But the very last page of the graphic novel is the editor of the New Frontiersman, a right-wing fascistic newspaper who needs something to fill the pages of his rag and then just picks up Rorschach's journal, which he sent him earlier in the book. So at the end, Rorschach is the one who maybe is going to expose the whole thing. We are not quite sure because it cuts with, with somebody in the office just sort of reaching for the journal. But maybe he's not even going to pick up the journal. We don't know. But that sort of makes Rorschach the idol, the hero who exposes the evil machinations of the others, who exposes the truth. And even though Alan Moore himself is not right-wing, Alan Moore, for example, is active uh, in the fight against neo-fascists, against uh, racists, against neo-Nazis, but... He's a conspiracy theorist. He is a man who's interested in the occult, who's interested in all these outsider views of reality. And therefore, they are sort of his natural bedfellows. They are also on the outside of the mainstream. And even though they're on the other side than he is, he still, in my eyes, feels a certain kinship for them. I think the best and most important thing that you said in the last few minutes was the word maybe. Because... The end is very open, and that is intended to be that way. Maybe this editor picks up the journal, maybe the whole thing will be uncovered, maybe there might be a second Cold War or a nuclear war going on, but maybe not. And that is made quite clear by the very last words uttered in the graphic novel. When the editor reaches for the journal, his colleague says, I leave it entirely in your hands. And that is a highly programmatic message from more to the reader. The readers themselves have to decide what to make of all of this. And more is honest enough to leave this open end. Maybe that is also a bit hypocritical. He has clearly his own view. But at the same time, 
He doesn't want to force his views on us. He wants us to engage with this world, engage with the text, and all the complexity basically is an invitation rather than an exclusion of the reader, making clear that nothing is as it seems and there's always another aspect to consider. Another thing I'd like to ask you is, Christian, why do we always read books with rape in them? <laughs> We've read Lolita, which has uh, pedophilic rape. We've read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, where the whole court trial is about an alleged rape, but it's still described in very distressing detail. Tristan Shandy, I think, has no sexual violence in it. It just has really fucked up gender relations. But then here... The comedian tries to rape a female vigilante, the Silk Spectre. And then, over the course of the book, it turns out that a couple of years after he attempted to rape her, they had a consensual sexual relationship. Her daughter is the result of that. And even in the end, the old Silk Spectre still grieves for the comedian. Do you think that's okay? Well, I don't think that it is okay. I mean, the specific case of the rape and then the consensual relationship they have, that is something maybe to be disgusted by. It's something fucked up, but it's not something to criticize per se. Rather, what is to be criticized is that Moore has a history of using rape as a dramatic element. There's even a kind of mimetic joke in the comics community that you can always tell whether a comic is written by Alan Moore because it features an attack or a rape of a woman. And that is a problematic tendency, even in here. It adds to the, again, rather ambiguous portrayal of women in Watchmen. Because there is a certain air, at least, of misogyny, not just in the graphic novel itself, because obviously characters like Rorschach or the comedian have a really horrible view on women. But even the view of Moran Gibbons sometimes seems to see the female characters as a kind of byproduct. They're just there to be treated in a certain way by the male characters. So, yeah, the role of women in Watchmen is problematic. And so the rape as kind of yeah traumatic event fits this ambiguous portrayal only too well. I cannot comment on the context of Moore's work and how he uses rape, of course. But I think in Watchmen, it's actually handled rather well because it is never sugar-coated or it's never made harmless. It's always said, this is a horrible, disgusting thing that happened. And also the fact that they had a consensual relationship afterwards is seen as really fucked up. When her daughter realizes that she is the product of a consensual relationship between her mother and the man who almost raped her, she breaks down. She cannot handle this. And later she says, it's okay, mom. It's really fucked up and it's really complicated. And I think that acknowledges the fact that these are very fucked up people. So things like that are going to happen because their psyche is all jumbled up. But for me, at least, it sometimes feels as if rape is just another bullet point on a kind of list that Moore had. And that list was titled, Fucked Up Things Superheroes Aren't Supposed to Do But Actually Do. And so rape is in, on that list along with murder along with political machinations, along with genocide, along with sexual kinks. And for me, at least, it might be 
a bit too cookie cutter this treatment it's yeah that is maybe a general problem that i have with watchmen that everything is there according to the master plan everything is structured to such an incredible degree that sometimes the spirit the life force of the narrative is choked several commentators have said that you read it you see that it's really really good but you feel overwhelmed by it at times and i have share that feeling to a certain degree i think what is partly related to this problem you just mentioned is the fact that sometimes there is very clunky exposition for example in the first chapter one of the detectives investigating the comedian's murder says to the other i don't know i think you take this vigilante stuff too seriously since the keen act was passed in 77 only the government sponsored weirdos are active and this is just hello reader this is a world where superheroes exist but since 1977 they have been outlawed and that is so unnecessary because there is some great exposition into in this as well for example in chapter 2 when the, we actually see the funeral of the comedian there are flashbacks everyone who attends the funeral gets a flashback and remembers things the comedian did that is great exposition or in chapter 4 when dr manhattan has left earth and is on mars he remembers his life how he came to be and everything about these superheroes and that works because he is a being who sees time so very differently so for him this is happening at the very moment and it has already happened and it will happen that is a very elegant and clever way to do exposition so why do it so badly in chapter one yeah i agree Sometimes there are bits where you have the feeling that Moore and Gibbons simply wanted to put so much information into the panels or the dialogue that it feels almost, yeah, as you said, clunky. There's also the usual trick that Moore has trying to connect the text with the images that you have the dialogue from another scene interlinked with the pictures from what is happening elsewhere. And sometimes that works really well and adds to this complexity and this feeling that everything is connected in some way but sometimes it feels like bad jokes bad puns for example in the third chapter we see dr manhattan getting dressed up tying his tie with his mind powers and at the same time this image is commented by a dialogue between laurie silk specter 2 and night owl and she says sometimes i look at myself and think how did everything get so tangled up Oh, I get it. Yes, everyone gets it. And <laughs> this, in, in, these interlinks are sometimes too obvious. And the whole book is structured along the same panel layout. You have nine panels in three rows, so three times three panels. And this layout is kept through the whole thing. That's actually something I really like about the style. This very strict three-by-three three pattern really appealed to me. And they do great things with it as well. There's a whole chapter, chapter five, that is even titled Fearful Symmetry. And it is layouted in an entirely symmetrical way. So the first page is in the same layout as the last page. And even panels correspond to each other. The second page is corresponding to the second to last page and so on. So that whole thing is worked out quite brilliantly and you can only do it with such a strict panel layout. But at the same time, it feels again sometimes stifling. 
might get tiring to reread all of the time and sometimes again feels clumsy if all of the information is kind of stuffed into these very strict panels. It feels sometimes as if not only the characters but also the readers are caught in this unrelenting structure that just goes on and bombards them with all this complexity and information. Reading Watchmen, I think, can be a trial sometimes. And at least for me, reading it for the first time, it definitely wasn't fun. For me, it was fun. It was hard because I had to force myself to look at the pictures. But it is basically a very good story. But I think that leads us really well to the question already. Should you read this? Is this not only great, but also good literature? I would say, actually, yes, you should read it. But the question is, when should you read it? Are you already familiar with comics and with the kind of trappings maybe of superhero comics? Then, yes, you shouldn't even ask yourself that. You must read Watchmen because it has such a pivotal role. And I think this reputation is quite justified. In a way, this graphic novel, together with Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, is responsible for the dark and gritty superheroes that we've grown to maybe love, maybe hate, especially in films in recent times. You wouldn't have Nolan Batman without Rorschach or Ozymandias. If you're interested in graphic novels, then yes, you should read it. But if you're still trying out whether you can actually like comics and graphic novels and see them as literature, then maybe something else is a better entrance point. Well, fuck, you've basically made the point that I wanted to make. Uh, it's culturally so incredibly significant. Uh, without this, we wouldn't have the Nolan Batman, which I love. I think you're a bit more dubious towards it. Mm. We also wouldn't have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I adore and People like Robert Redford and Kenneth Branagh work on these movies. They wouldn't do that if Watchmen hadn't been there. You mean presidential candidate Robert Redford? What? No, that's Ronald Reagan. It's Robert Redford. Obviously. Yeah. Oh, fuck! I didn't realize that, that they make it Robert Redford in the yeah. book. They even comment on uh, a cowboy actor isn't supposed to become president. Okay, I mixed up Robert Redford and Ronald Reagan, which is really unfair because Robert Redford is a good guy and Ronald Reagan is literally Satan. But Robert Redford, I get it, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) So they are definitely very culturally significant for superheroes, but I think also in other aspects. For example, I'm convinced that the scene in Frozen where Elsa builds her ice castle is influenced by the scene in Watchmen where Dr. Manhattan builds a glass palace on Mars. You cannot tell me that these two scenes are not in some way related. Okay, I said it's hard to overestimate the influence, but that may be exactly that. But still, I am not sure whether I really enjoyed it that much. I think I did, but... I think maybe I should go and read something else. Um, I've taken a look at V for Vendetta, but I'm not sure whether I will like that style either. But Christian, what would you recommend that a novice to graphic novels, as I still am, should read? Well, there are several entrance points. I think one that is quite similar in its status as Watchmen, but maybe much easier to ease into if you're as you said, a novice, is Neil Gaiman's Sandman series, 
which is also one of the true classics of 1980s, 1990s comics, one of the harbingers of the graphic novel, even though in Gaiman's case, it is much more about the development of the whole series. It is also about a kind of superhuman character, the Sandman, the personification of Dream, but it is much more about mythologies, about storytelling, about humans dealing with narratives in their lives and less about the mythology of superheroes. So it is easier in that regard and also it is easier because its structure is less rigid. Instead of trying to fit everything into a kind of mastermind structure, Gaiman uses a great variety of different literary and visual styles, works with a great variety of different artists. And so the world he creates is much more colorful, has many more facets, and is much more human than the often rigid structure of Watchmen. And as a kind of side recommendation, if you think that Moore has a point and you like his way of dealing with superheroes, there's always Promethea, his kind of magic slash superheroine saga, which is also quite structured in its own way and deals with many of the same aspects as Watchmen. But it's just so much more fun. I am, of course, not an expert on visual literature, graphic literature or graphic novels, but I also have two recommendations. One is an anti-recommendation, namely the first graphic novel I ever read, and that is Kick-Ass by Mark Miller. Reading Watchmen, I just realized, oh wow, Kick-Ass wants to be this so fucking bad, and it so fucking isn't. It takes all the worst parts of Watchmen and amplifies them. The ugly, gritty style, the romanticized, fetishized violence, the sexual assault as well. Everything Mark Miller does features sexual assault in some way. And in his case, it really feels like he's into it. In Moore's case, for me, it felt like he wasn't. So if you see Kick-Ass somewhere, avoid it like the plague. And something else that I would recommend is from a different kind of visual tradition. It is a manga called Death Note by Tsugumi Oba and Takeshi Obata which deals with similar topics like Watchmen. It's about a teenager who finds the notebook of a Shinigami, a death spirit or a death god, that makes it possible for him to write the name of a person into that notebook and kill them. And he decides to use that power to make the world a better place by killing off criminals. And then you get all these questions you get in Watchmen as well. Is that the right thing to do? Is this vigilantism okay? Is it not? I've watched the anime already, which is brilliant. I'm reading the manga now, which I also really enjoy, though I like the style in the anime a little better. Uh, so that would be an interesting companion piece to Watchmen as well, I feel. But what is your opinion on Watchmen? You can get in touch with us on outsideofadogcast at gmail.com and tell us why we're idiots for thinking that Rorschach is a homicidal maniac that you shouldn't emulate, or... Maybe also to write something nice. Hey, you can do that. You can tell us that also via Facebook, like us there. And if you want to listen to more of our idiotic ramblings, or maybe not so idiotic ramblings, please subscribe to us on iTunes. But you can also find the podcast on our homepage, outsideofadogcast.com. Recommend us to your friends and your local superheroes. And come back in two weeks' time on 
April the 23rd, which is Shakespeare's birthday, for our discussion of... A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's just going to be about sex again, isn't it? Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. His humanity. 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 Foolish humans. Humans. Kneel before thought.